As you're kind of getting yourself situated in Ephesians chapter 4, let me uh, paint a little bit of a picture for you or bring you into uh, an imaginary scene. Imagine that you are an employer. Imagine you own a business and you have an opportunity to hire an employee. And uh, you begin kind of casting the net out there and seeing what uh, you pull in. And you get some resumes. And as you're looking at the resumes, you see a lot of the resumes have some great stuff on them. There's great people who are applying for the position. And uh, uh, they've got great experience. You put them through the ringer. And maybe this particular individual gets put through the ringer. They interview incredibly well. And you're surprised by all that they seem to have to offer. And you think, man, they're going to be such a great fit in this job, in this role. And uh, you hire them, and the references check out, and everything looks great. But over time, you begin to watch this employee. And what you begin to notice is that they're a great person. They've got lots of great things to offer. And in fact, they're doing some really, really good things. But, but they're not doing the one thing you've actually hired them to do. And you've been crystal clear. You've said, this is the job description, and this is the actual purpose of your job. This is why I'm hiring, hiring you. But as you evaluate their, their work, what you're finding is that they're actually not doing the very thing that they're supposed to be doing. Now, what I've actually just described for you is most Christians and most churches. And in fact, Jesus tells some parables about this, and he uses these parables to describe someone who hires some servants in a king who hires servants, and he gives them responsibility, and, and he gives them money often, Jesus uses talents, the talents representing the money, and he tells them to multiply what he's given them. Go and use this and make more money. Multiply your efforts, and Jesus always praises those who are faithful to do what he's actually asked them to do. But if you remember the parables you know that there is one who is given much but does nothing with it. You know, it's possible for us as, as a church to have a lot of really great things going for us, you know, to have a nice building, to have the best music in town, to have phenomenal creative programs, to have amazing, sweet technology that we use, but to miss the point of what God has called us to do. It's possible that we can have all these great things going for us, but the reality is, without the one thing that Jesus calls it to do, us to do, without understanding the mission and purpose of our individual lives and the life of the church, we're actually failing. What's the one thing that Jesus has called us to do? The answer is very simple. Let's make disciples. Let's make disciples. That's your job, church. That's your job, Christian. That's what Jesus says. As our king enlists us in his service, he says, you've got one job to do. You're going to do lots of other things, but there's one primary thing you ought to do. It's make disciples. And as we've looked at what makes our church distinctive, what the culture of redemption looks like, what the culture of an individual Christian, a redeemed life looks like, what the culture of a church ought to look like, we're going through these six distinctives that you see on the banners, and we're highlighting this morning the main purpose of the church in one sense, and that is this, purposeful disciple-making. Disciple-making that is intentional and done in the context of community, and that's exactly what this text reminds us of this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Ian, we, we went through Ephesians last ministry year, and we've already gone through this passage. I actually thought about just randomly having some of you stand up and give us the outline from that sermon. <laughs> no pressure. But in that first sermon I preached on this text, I looked at what the distinctive marks of a disciple are. What does it mean to be a mature church. And this morning, I want to look at the same text, 
but I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. I really want to focus on how a disciple is made. And so I trust as we look at this text, that's going to be a very clear for us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to draw out four commitments from this text to help us make disciples. Four commitments. If we can commit to these four things, they will truly help us make disciples. And this will help push forward the culture of this church as a purposeful disciple-making culture. Let's read the text together. Paul writes in chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 11. He says, and he talking about Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Four commitments to help us make disciples. The first commitment I want us to make is this. We need to see it as our primary task. That's the commitment that you and I have to make for this to be a, truly a part of the culture of this church. We need to see making disciples as our primary task. Discipleship is what we have been called to. Now, we see that right out the gates in verse 11 and 12, just by the way that Paul describes the structure of the church, how the church is supposed to function. He reminds us in verse 11 that God has actually given a gift to the church, and that is the leadership of the church. You'll, you'll notice what he says here, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Every one of those roles that God has given, those individuals with those specific roles, they're leadership roles, but they're more than that. Listen, they're teaching roles. God gives these leaders to help instruct the church towards a specific goal. The first and primary task and role of every leader is to be, by extension, the first and primary task of every individual in the church. You see, the job of the leaders here, what we see, is the same job that Jesus told his disciples to do, which was simply this, make disciples. What we see Paul fleshing out here is an extension of what is known as the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew chapter 28. Here's how you need to do that, church. Here's how I've equipped the church to do that job in the lives of the people that I am saving. Now, I want to look briefly at the Great Commission. It's so critical for us to understand. It really is the heartbeat of this church. And I want to put it on the screen behind us, and I want to, I want to just show you, I want to prove to you that this really is the um, distinctive feature of a follower of Christ. That this is the primary task. You'll remember the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, by the way, this is important to note, that every single one of the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they include a version of the Great Commission. Every single one of them highlights it, and that tells us that it's incredibly important. You're finding it in every one of the gospels. It is the very last statement Jesus leaves with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And here's what he tells them to do. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Something that's so familiar to us, but I want you to see why make disciples is so critical. And this involves a little bit of of grammar for those of you who hate English. Uh, Let me just prime the pump here. You see, it's important to understand the grammar of this text. In the Greek in particular, um, there is a dominant verb, and the dominant verb is the uh, imperative verb. It's, It's the command tone of the verb, do this. That is always the driving force of a passage, how you kind of get to the heart of the passage, what exactly is the point of the passage. And here what we see, the dominant verb, the imperative verb, is make disciples. Now there's three other verbs that are in this passage that are important, but they're not dominant, and here's how we know that, and they're highlighted there for you in bold. You see that there? There is go or going. It's actually, uh, these are participles. Going, That's the missional aspect. Baptizing, that implies that people are actually being saved, right? They're they're putting their faith in Jesus and they're being baptized as an expression of their commitment to follow Jesus. And then you notice the teaching, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are all three verbs, but they're participles. And here's what that means in the original language. It means they're actually fleshing out how to do the main thing. They're subservient to the main thing. And the main thing that Jesus says is the main thing that Paul says, and that is this, your primary task is to make disciples, church. You gotta go to do that, right? You gotta go to the nations. You gotta go to people. And you gotta share your faith with people so that they can be baptized and surrender their life to Jesus and experience the joy of a relationship with him. And then you gotta teach them in an ongoing way everything that I have taught to you, all that I've commanded you. You take and you pass that on to them. That's how you make disciples. And Paul says this is the role of the leaders of the church. I love what J.D. Greer says. He says the mission precedes the church. In other words, the church is a means to an end, right? The church, the church isn't the point. The church exists to carry out the mission. Not the mission for the church. So here, we see Jesus give us the clear, resounding, clarion call to every follower of Jesus Christ. Here we see Paul saying, notice, this is the great commission in action in the life of the church. Robert Coleman is an author of a, of a really popular book. It's a, somewhat known as a Christian classic. It's called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. I'm going to quote a few times from it, but Here's what he says in in this book, The Master's Plan for Evangelism. He says, The Great Commission is not merely to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. It's not just to baptize lots of converts, nor to teach them the precepts of Christ. It is, he says, to make disciples. And here, this is so important. Here's what he says. To build men and women like themselves who are so constrained by the commission of Christ that they not only follow Jesus themselves, but they lead others to follow him too. That's it. And you know, the the criteria by which any church should measure their success is not, as Robbie Gallaty says, um, bodies, buildings, and bucks, right? Which is the the normal way we want to measure the success of a church. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the first question in somebody's mouth when they find out I'm a pastor, how many people go to your church? Oh, do you you have a nice building? (laughs) That's mostly other pastors, by the way. How big is the budget? You see, those are not unimportant details, and we're not out on those things, right? But listen, they're not the main thing, and they're not the ultimate determiner of success. Jesus says to us, and Paul is saying in Ephesians here, that you know, the, the key determiner of success in the life of the church is this, are you making disciples? 
That's the measuring stick. You, you want to find out, you really want to determine how successful you are as a follower of Christ. One of the key things to look at in your life is, am I actually making disciples? Am I doing, here's why, am I doing the one thing that Jesus says is necessary to be a faithful follower of Christ? Am I doing the primary task? And this is really interesting to me because it's, it's helpful to see, you know, a, a lot of times we want to measure the success of a church by how many, how many people have been baptized, or how many people have become a Christian, right? The idea is they're looking at conversion as being the, the total marker of a successful church. Again, that's not unimportant, but did you know that the Bible, the New Testament in particular, only uses the word Christian three times? Did you know that? But it uses the word disciple, or the root of disciple, 281 times. And that just instructs us that, that the Christian life is actually a life of ongoing growth. You see, discipleship begins at the moment of conversion. But it is intended by God to continue until the day we are with our Savior, Jesus Christ. True disciples, if we look at this text and we look at the word of Jesus, this is helpful to make a note of this morning if you're taking notes. True disciples are people who are making other disciples. You may look at this passage in Ephesians and say, well, well Ian, that, that's just the task of the leaders, right? Like, that's why God gave the leaders. The leaders are to be making disciples. But I just want you to notice what verse 12 says. Right? We do this, listen, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, the leaders exist to make disciples who will then do the work of the ministry. You say, well, what is the work of the ministry? Simply put, listen, to make disciples, to make other disciples. Making disciples, in other words, is not just the primary task of the leaders of the church. It is the primary task of every follower of Jesus Christ. That may look differently. We may have different roles in this process, but every one of us is called to this same primary task. So you say, okay, you give me some application. Okay, here you go. Here's the first application of the sermon this morning. This, believe this. <laughs> But believe, some of you are like, no, tell me what I need to do. You need to believe. You know, sometimes the best application for our hearts is to believe, truly believe, to the very depth of our soul, the truths of Scripture. And listen, I can promise you that disciple-making will not be the culture of our church. It will not be a distinguishing feature of your life unless you actually buy into this reality, that this is the primary task that God has called you to, not, not your neighbor, not the person beside you, not me, you. You are called to be a purposeful disciple-maker. And if you buy into that, then everything else will begin to flow from that. If you truly believe that this is what God has called you to do, watch how God begins to use you towards that end. And if this is true, that this is to be our primary task, we need to see it as our primary task, and this naturally follows, here's our second commitment uh, to help us become disciple makers, it's this, we need to seek it with a precise goal. So, okay, I get, I get that my responsibility is to make other disciples, but we need to actually zero in on what that means. Like, what's the goal here? What's at the heart, in other words, of being a disciple? Is it to see, simply see people saved? No. No, like I said before, that's the starting point. It's not the end goal. The end goal is being a disciple. So let's define what it means to be a disciple then. Here's, here's a great definition. Robbie Gallaty, he says this. He says, at the very core of discipleship is a learner, one who is set on growing and developing. The term disciple means just that. It means learner. And we get a kind of a glimpse into what this looked like in the, in the ancient days, and especially in the Jewish culture. Oftentimes in the Jewish culture, they would look towards a rabbi, and they would look to him to disciple them, and they would become disciples of particular rabbis. What we know from 
um, secular literature is that their life of a disciple became consumed by the one they followed. They would soak up everything they could from the one who was instructing them, so much so that it was often said that, that many of the disciples would mimic every aspect of the rabbi's life. They would mimic the way he talked. They would mimic the, the body expressions. They would even mimic the way he walked. You see, a disciple, biblically speaking, is somebody who follows Christ and is learning from Christ. And it's important just to say out the gates, listen, that, that you're not a disciple of Christ unless you have actually followed Christ. And I think that's just important to say, listen, the, the discipleship begins when you, maybe you're an unbeliever here today, and, and you're like, man, all you Christians ever want to do is convert me. Yes. Let's just make clear we're on the same page with that. I'm serious. I'm honest. That's what we, I, I live to see you come to the greatest truth that could ever be known and embraced. And listen, a heart for you is simply this. Maybe you're looking like, well, what is all this talk of being a disciple? Listen, it begins right here. It begins by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And that simply means this. You know, when Jesus walked up to his disciples, he said, follow me. Leave your life behind. Drop your, drop your nets, drop your business, drop your boats. And that, this is not a call for you to quit your job. But the imagery is so vivid. Listen, leave your old life behind. Leave your life of sin behind. Recognize that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Recognize, listen, that all of your past, all of your sin is first and foremost rebellion against the God who created you and loves you and actually went out of his way to come and rescue you even while you were shaking your fist in his face. He did that by loving you, by sending his own son. He said, listen, all of your rebellion should equate to your eternal punishment. You deserve my wrath because of your rebellion, and you deserve it forever because you have violated a eternal, holy God. And instead, he looks at you and says, you know, instead of punishing you, I'm going to send my son as your substitute. And he's going to die a gruesome, horrible death on the cross in your place. And yes, it's going to be physically violent, but it's going to be spiritually violent. I will unleash my wrath upon him instead of upon you. And if you look to him and you say, that is my king, that is my Lord. I am laying down my old life of sin. I am repenting of my sin, and I am putting my faith and trust in him alone. Then he promises you this. Listen, right now, in this moment, he promises you, you can have new life. All your sins washed as white as snow. Grace upon grace, overflowing into your life. You can have that. And that, listen, that is the starting point of a new life for you. Because a follower of Christ, listen, here's what it means to be a disciple. It's somebody who follows Christ, but is then, therefore, formed by Christ. Your life begins to dra dramatically change, not overnight, some areas maybe, but over time, in following Christ more closely, you begin to look like the one you follow. He begins to form your life. Everything he thinks, you try to, to think after him. Every bit of behavior, you try to mimic. Every response, you try to respond like him. Your life begins to be consumed by him. And here in verse 13, listen to what he says the ultimate goal is until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see what it means to follow Jesus? To know him collectively together, everything there is to know about him. Pulling us to this place where it says to the mature manhood where we move from ignorance to knowledge to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
it's clear what the main goal is. It's maturity. And maturity, scripturally speaking, in this case, is another way of saying Christ-likeness. That, that's the goal for you. That's the goal for me. Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's the reason that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's unapologetic about his mission, about his goal. He understands his task. He knows what he's after. Paul says in Ephesians 4 here that the main goal of the leaders is to make disciples who look like their Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we do together in the body of Christ. We help one another better follow Jesus by growing in the knowledge of God and by learning to put that knowledge into practice. To understand better and to live better. See, we are aiming here together, collectively, you and me together, with one another, you with your neighbor, to help one another move from a place of immaturity to maturity, from a place of spiritual weakness to a place of spiritual strength, from a place of spiritual ignorance to a place of spiritual understanding, and here's a big one, from a place of merely knowing to a place of actually doing. Paul said it a few times in the New Testament, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's really what every one of us ought to be able to say to one another as we continue to grow in maturity. So let's just ask this question then. Well, what are the marks of maturity? Here's the way we're framing this in, in the life of our church. Um, three things are going to be up on the screen behind us. Marks of maturity. How do I know that I'm growing in maturity? What should be some of the visible evidence? Here's some of the buckets for you, okay? Here's the first one, um, that you are abiding in Christ. A mature disciple is somebody who abides in Christ. As a regular practice, you say, what does that mean? Listen, this is aiming at two things in particular. One is your desires, and the other is your disciplines. Okay, let me break those down for you. They're very important. Jesus uses the term abide in me and you will bear much fruit in John 15. He uses the word abide over and over for his disciples. Abide, abide, abide. That is lean into me, love me, know me, and you will begin to look like me. The bearing fruit is looking like Jesus in every way. But here's where that begins. It begins at the, the level of desire. That, that as we abide in him, the desire and the affections and the longings for him, for more of him, are steadily increasing. Yes, you know, there, there, there's things in life that throw that off, but listen, there is to be an increasing sort of affection for Christ. That the affections of our heart are blowing up wider and wider. The affections for the things of the world, listen, if you're, if you're a mature Christ, are diminishing. Your love of the world, your love of the pleasures of this world, your love of sin, those things are diminishing and your love and desire for more of your Savior are increasing. And that's deeply connected to the idea of disciplines in the Christian life. And it's cyclical. You see, as your desires, your prayer for desires, your longing for desires, your ex experience of greater desires for him, listen, they, they're, they're fostered by and they lead to greater disciplines, the disciplines of the Christian life. The disciplines of communion with Christ, where you're regularly meeting with him, where your intimacy with Christ, your knowledge and your love is expanding so much because you're with him regularly. You're with him regularly through the means of grace, the word of God. You're hearing his voice regularly as he speaks to you from scripture through the power of his spirit. You're communing with him through prayer. You're meditating upon his word because you're storing it up in your heart. Like you're, you're memorizing scripture. You're loving it so much and it's increasing your love and affection for your savior. 
Abiding in Christ is a mark of a, of a faithful, mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's the second one, connecting in the church. Connecting in the church. If you're abiding in Christ, it naturally will lead you to a love for the church. You cannot be a mature disciple of Jesus Christ and not love the church. You can't. Because to not love the church is not to love what Jesus loves. It's not to love his bride. And connecting in the church, here's how you can maybe think of that. Um, that, that involves blessing God communally and building up others faithfully. So we gather together, listen, connecting in the church, we gather together for sure once a week to bless God, to worship him. Like we are here, the primary purpose of us being here is worship. It's worship. And secondarily, one of the ways in which we worship is by building others up, by serving one another with our gifts. By the way, um, making disciples is a primary way we worship God. Did you know that? Making disciples is a way in which we worship God. And catch this, this is, this is really important. This is also one of the ways that we exponentially bring greater glory to God. There's very few ways in the Christian life that we can exponentially increase glory and praise and worship to God. Faithfully evangelism and discipleship is one of those ways. Here's why. Listen, because God's means of growing the church is not addition, it's multiplication. And when disciples are multiplied, right, when, when one disciple is making another disciple is making another disciple, here's what happens. More and more people coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. More and more parties in heaven as they rejoice over the repentance of another sinner. More and more people growing in their love for God and the love for the church and praising God with their hearts and with their life and with their voices. Exponential glory. Connecting in the church is a massive part. It's a commitment to what God is committed to his bride, his body, his family, which is laced throughout this whole passage. It's the one he's the head of. Connecting in the church is one of the means God uses to use you to grow others, but what he uses to grow you. The third thing is this. It's a natural byproduct of this. It's reaching the community. A mature disciple of Christ is somebody who is abiding in Christ, somebody who is connecting in the church, and somebody who is reaching the community in two ways, serving and proclaiming. I think the more mature you are, the more you long to serve those in need, to bless those, uh, have compassion, to meet needs in practical ways. But listen, even more than that, at that deeper level, like we saw last week, there is a desire to meet the spiritual needs, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that God is coming into this world to save sinners like me, like you. And that's really what we're focusing on even in this, this morning's message. But as we grow, what is growing is the desire to see more and more people saved, discipled, so that more and more people can be saved and discipled, and on and on and on. That's our goal. That's our goal. And so thirdly, we must commit to this. If we're going to make disciples faithfully here, we must commit to succeed at it through a purposeful strategy. We know that it's our primary task. We know that we must seek it with a precise goal, but we must understand that we will only succeed at it through a purposeful strategy. And that's actually somewhat implied, I believe, in the text here, as Paul now gives us this graphic imagery. You'll notice what he says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 
Part of the Christian life is helping people grow up. And if you just think of, of a parent with a young child, you know, most of us, uh, a lot of us, tend to operate like we don't know what we're doing. Fair enough? <laughs> we're going to operate out of ignorance, and, and yet at the same time, none of us desires to simply be haphazard in our parenting. Good parenting actually involves sitting down and purposefully thinking about what my child needs to move from a place of immaturity to a place of maturity. Why? Why? Because of all the, 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 the ways of this world that are going to come at them. We need to better prepare them, so we need to be thinking very strategically about how to make that happen. You know, every once in a while, um, you know, usually kind of in an old school kind of way, people want to talk about their past and how, you know, they had to do it themselves. You know, I, I had to do everything myself. I, I mean, my, my father never taught me to swim. He just threw me in the deep end. To which I respond, no, he didn't. You want to know how I know? Because you're here. Unless you were like 20 and he threw you in and it wasn't that deep. He, he, was, he certainly didn't throw you in when you were an infant, right? <laughs> well, good luck. And yet, that's the way many of us have actually been discipled in our Christian lives. And in some ways, that's, that's the way that we're trying to disciple others. We're like, okay, I, I got you saved. Uh, good luck. I hope you survive. You see, the reality is, is that an unbeliever who is newly saved is still very immature, like a child who's tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. You have to understand something here from this text. Listen, that if you don't disciple somebody, somebody else will. And often you won't like the thing or the one who's trying to do the discipling. Here we see that the wind and waves can carry, carry people about, and look at how they're defined, every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. It's imperative to understand that if we don't actually do the discipling, somebody else will. You'll either be discipled by the world, the flesh, or the devil. Listen, the world, listen, the world will disciple you towards its ends. The world will disciple you away from godliness towards worldliness. Satan loves to get in there. I mean, you don't think Satan wants to get in there and try and disciple as many people as he can away from Christ-likeness into ungodliness, away from truth and into error? And the flesh, listen, if you just leave, leave, a, leave a baby to himself, right? Leave a, just leave a young child to himself. If I left my son by himself in the house and said, go fend for yourself, he would eat so much candy, he would be a diabetic by the time I got back. The truth is that we need to be more careful in how we think about investing in people. It's interesting when you think of Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will take you under my wing, in other words. I will help you become who you're supposed to be. I will show you how to do it. I will invest my life into your life so that you can become like me. The Great Commission doesn't say, go therefore unto all nations and figure out how to make disciples. And that's because, listen, making disciples was an implied reality for the disciples at that time. So when Jesus, you, there's a context that the Great Commission was given in, wasn't there? Right? So when Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples, not one of them was like, oh, make disciples, what does that mean? How do we do that? Every one of them had a context for what that looked like because Jesus had just showed them for three years of his life. In other words, they, they heard the make disciple idea and say, oh, I, I get it. Just go and do exactly what Jesus did with us for the last three years and we'll produce people like us that Jesus produced. 
So you say, how do we, how do we prevent people from being tossed to and fro? How do we disciple them and protect them and care for them? How do we do this? Well, someone has, has once said that 75% of discipleship is informal. And I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. In other words, discipleship, as Jesus modeled it, is life on life. If I could put it like this, like the greatest discipleship doesn't happen in an eight-week class, as valuable as that may be. That may be an important aspect of discipleship, but the greatest aspect, the most important aspects of discipleship happen in life-on-life relationships, and that's exactly what Jesus modeled to his disciples. It didn't matter what Jesus was doing, he seemed to always be doing it with others. His disciples were always close at hand, learning as they watched. Someone has put it like this, one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. It's life on life, but the, the flip side of that is that it is also strategic and intentional and instructional. That's why things like classes are actually very valuable as a means and a tool for discipleship. You remember Jesus, as he was doing life-on-life stuff with them, he was always intentionally instructing them. I mean, living with Jesus was like constantly being in school. It was a constant clinic on theology, on truth, on living a life that is honoring to God. And Jesus was always pausing to instruct his disciples, wasn't he? When he wasn't waiting for them to simply come and ask all the questions, he was actually intentionally stirring their hearts up, provoking them to ask questions, leading them down paths, uh, taking time to pull off and sit down on the side of a hill and discuss important truths. So much was caught as they simply did life with him, but so very much was taught as they sat at the feet of their master. And what that means for us is that we need to open our lives up to actually live them with others. You think about this model and you say, well, what's really what are you getting at? And what I'm saying is this, we need to be more, much more like Jesus in our relationships. And this really dovetails on what I said last week in our evangelism, you know, the hospitality, opening our homes up to unbelievers. Listen, I mean, how much more so do we open our homes up to the family of God? How much more so do we have to open our lives up to one another if we're truly going to disciple one another? You, you cannot make a disciple who looks like Jesus without opening up your life to them and inviting them in. And by the way, that doesn't mean just the, the, the nicely polished parts of your life. It means the whole thing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's how people learn from your example how to handle difficult things, right? They see you failing and falling and acknowledging and confessing and repenting and striving even in the hard things. We need to open up our lives up to one another. And for some of you, you're like, wow, I mean... And that's going to take a lot. Yep. Yeah, it is. There is a cost to living like this. There is. It is a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice, sadly, that so many Christians are unwilling to make, which is producing a culture of very stagnant, apathetic Christians. Coleman says this in his book, The Master's Plan for Evangelism. He says, such close and constant association of course meant virtually that Jesus had little to no time to call his own. And that's so true. When you read through the, the Gospels, I mean, Jesus is always with people all the time. Very few occasions. Like when he's sleeping and when he's praying. Did you know if you read through the Gospel of Luke that in almost every instance of Jesus ministering and discipling, it's done in the context of meals? Do you know that? It's fascinating to study Jesus in food. <laughs> I love Jesus. He loves food. 
I mean, just think about the, the amount of opportunities you have to make disciples. Just think about the, the amount of meals you eat in the week. Like for most of three meals a day, that's 21. Most of you eat double, right? That's a lot of discipleship opportunity to sit down over food and talk about the things of the Lord and help somebody strategically work through what it means to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. This goes back to, again, what I said last week. We need to resist the inclination of our sinful hearts to live in isolation. And we need to pursue a Christ-like perspective on community. This is why the pillar there, so the distinctive says it's intentional and in community. We need to be intentional about being in community. Here in verse 14, it says that we are going to, as we pour our lives into one another, protect them from the deceitful schemes of Satan, craftiness of those who would lead them astray, And here's the way this will often look in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, a purposeful strategy requires a plan. There are things that must be specifically taught, that's truth, that we need to think through. And we need to do it in a specific way, that's love. We speak the truth in love, and this is so important here, so that people would grow up in every way. Now, now, the way you ha- tackle issues in people's lives is by actually being around them. You can see, like, the more you're around them, the more issues come to the surface, the more you see what they need help thinking through. So in every way, the more you're around people, in every way you're seeing their life, and you're able to bring the truth of God's word to bear on every part of their life. Some of this is going to happen organically just as things come up in the moment and you're seeing things in relationships. And and I would say the vast majority is going to happen that way. But some of this actually needs to happen far more strategically and intentionally. We need to actually come up with plans for how to disciple people. We need to walk them through specific truths that they need to understand and embrace. That's why we do classes, courses like Fundamentals of the Faith. Planning often produces success in our lives. We've all heard the kind of cliche saying that if you fail to plan, then you need to plan to fail. And I think we're really good at planning in a lot of areas of our lives. You plan when it comes to things like some of us, our diet or, or our gym schedule or our work schedule or even our education, how we're going to progress in our career and all of those things. We plan that stuff out and then we work to plan and experience great success. But when it comes to the Christian life, we're really content just to live it haphazardly. Like we just Like, we don't think that the same truth that works there is actually something that's going to work here. I mean, just imagine if you started understanding what God was calling you to and had a plan in place that was going to take you through a progression of growth in your spiritual life. Jesus had a a plan. And when we see aspects of his plan in the pages of Scripture, And Jesus had great success with his plan. Here was Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was this. um, I'm not going to primarily go to the masses. I'm not just going to preach evangelistic sermons, although those things are great. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get 12 guys, 12 ordinary men, and I'm going to spend three years investing my heart and soul and life into these men. And then I'm going to take three of those men, and I'm going to invest them in an even deeper level. And here's what's going to happen. In thousands of years, there's going to be millions of followers of Jesus Christ. Just think about that. God's way of growing the church is not addition, it's multiplication. 
And here at the church, we've embraced a similar plan. Now, we have tons of room to grow when it comes to discipleship, and, and the Lord has been really driving that into my heart. I have tons of room to grow personally in this. But here's what I do know, that this has always been the heartbeat of our church. We've always wanted to see uh, disciples being made who are making disciples. And one of the primary vehicles of discipleship in the life of our church is small groups, our small group ministry. And, and just so you know, a small group was not something we just started doing because we thought it was really cool and some kind of a fad that we needed to jump on. It, it was modeled after the method that Jesus used. You take a smaller group and you invest your life into them and you train them up so that they can go and make investments in others. This is the, the heartbeat of our church. This is what we're after. So I want to give you some really practical application here as well. And here it is. You need to embrace this plan as being something that's very effective. Taking your life and investing in a smaller group is something that is going to bring out exponential results. So if you're on board with helping this become a part of our culture, here's what you need to do. You need to get in a small group. Simply put, like you've been attending this church, you want to jump on board in this church, here's what we want to offer you. We want to offer you a vehicle of discipleship. We want to offer you opportunities to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And here's how we do that in small group ministry. Here, here's a context where you can get in the lives of other people, where you can open your life up to others, and you can share the struggles, the hurts, the pains, the praises, and you can see how God will use others to invest in you, to grow you, and how God will use you to invest in others and grow them. Our small group ministry is intended to do that for you. Um, of course, it's not being done perfectly and on all levels, but it is there for this purpose, and you can be a heart part of making it something incredibly valuable. So that, that brings me to the second point. And um, the small group members or small group leaders can be are paying me after this. Um, but here, here's the thing. Listen, uh, join a small group, and how about this? Attend a small group. Like, Ian, do you really need to say it? Yes, sadly, sadly. So can I, just, can I just really be really pastoral with you for a moment? Like, Ian, that's what you've been doing the whole time. Yes, true. Listen, th this is one of the real struggles right now in the life of our church, that we have small groups and opportunities for discipleship, and we have people, listen, who are saying, yeah, sign me up. I want to be in a small group. I understand what they're all about. I'll even sign a covenant that says I'm committed to this group. I'm committed to do this and to play a role in this and to serve and to bless and to pour my life into this, and, and then here's what happens. Then people don't show up. Can I just tell you that that is incredibly discouraging for people who are trying to actually lead a group and trying to grow in the context of community. You can't do it if people won't show up. And listen, this, this works both ways. They need to be pursuing you and offering you help and serving you, but you need to commit to them too. It's a mutual commitment that we make towards one another, believing that God is going to grow us through the process. So, so, okay, so here we are. Now, join a small group. Attend a small group. Let me just layer this for you. Here's the next thing. Listen, participate in the small group. Because some of you are like, I got one check, I got two check, and then you show up a small group, and here's what you do. You know, what do you think? I don't know. Ah, I don't know. You see, your engagement actually helps a group of individuals pursuing the Lord together to thrive. And it's a good thing for you to be participating and, and seeing how God will use that to grow your group. He's not going to grow your group in silence. I can promise you that, unless you're really praying hard silently. Maybe then. All right, here's the third thing, the fourth thing, excuse me. So you're be like, check, check, check. I got those three things. Okay, here's the other thing. Pursue deeper 
discipleship in the context of your small group. You're like, okay, I'm going. I've signed up. I'm going. I'm participating. But I want to go deeper. Good. Go to your small group leader. Go to somebody who's mature in the group. Say, I want to dig deeper into the things of the Lord. I really want to grow. I mean, would you help me with this? Pursue that kind of, that, that mentality in the life of that small group or with others who are in your life. I don't care. Just, just pursue that and see how God begins to bless that in your life. All right, embrace this method, and, and in that process, listen, craft a plan of discipleship. Well, give me a good plan to disciple somebody, Ian. That's a sermon for another time. Right now, here's what my hope is, that you embrace this philosophy. That this is what God is calling us to, and that God is going to bless us as we pursue it faithfully. Here's the fourth and final uh, commitment we must make together in our discipleship is this, set it up for perpetual results. Set it up for perpetual results. Look at verse 16 with me. Paul writes this, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see this beautiful picture that Paul paints of a body who is knit together and is strengthened as a result of it. But I want you to pay attention to a few key words there. Did you notice the word equipped there? The whole, uh, by every joint with which it is equipped. Listen, that drives us uh, to link back to verse 12. Remember the same word being used there? It says this, to equip the saints. The role of leaders, to equip the saints. And here we see in this final verse, the saints that are equipped. And remember back in verse 12, you know, why was the reason for the equipping of the saints? For the work of the ministry, it says in verse 12. Did you notice what it says here? Each part working properly. You see, you, you see when it's happening, it, it produces this next result. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, it, it begins to create this process where the leaders aren't the only ones making disciples. The church is building itself up in love. The, they're working together at making disciples who look like Jesus Christ. The whole goal, let me say it again, of the leaders in the church is to make disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples, who are making disciples, and on and on and on. Perpetual results. Ongoing growth. You know, things that are alive tend to grow. Healthy things tend to multiply. And if maybe I, I could put it like this, you are not a healthy, mature, Christ-like disciple Unless you are making healthy, mature, Christ-like disciples. It is a package deal. You cannot consider yourself a mature follower of Christ unless you are making mature followers of Christ. It's embedded in the Great Commission itself. Go and make disciples. And then part of what Jesus says, how do you do it? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You know one of the things Jesus taught his disciples? To make disciples. You cannot be mature not in the truest sense, spiritually speaking, unless you are a person who, too, is making disciples. It's the mission statement of our church, isn't it? I mean, we exist to see lost people saved. Come on, help me out. Saved people, what? Matured and matured people multiplied. All to the glory of God. This is why we do what we do. This is why we exist as a church. And I think some of our, our problem, you know, we've got a lot of uh, just the church in general is somewhat apathetic to the things of the Lord. But every once in a while, uh, I have people come to me and say, Ian, I, I, I want to go deeper. 
but, but for them, my concern is a lot of people who say that are really saying, I want to go deeper in knowledge. In other words, I want my sphere of knowledge to increase. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but what I think a lot of people are truly saying is this, I really don't want to go deeper in terms of my intimacy and faithfulness to the Lord. I simply want to go wider in the things I know of the Lord. And, and I just want to say to a lot of people who, who believe they just need to go deeper, how much more do you need to know to do more with the things you already know? Like, the problem with learning more, listen, is that you're accountable to do more. Do you get that? It's a big problem for Christians if we're constantly accumulating knowledge and truth, but the gap between how we're living and and putting that into practice is actually growing. Listen, our goal as Christians is to take what we know and close the the gap with what we're actually doing with it. It's to move those things closer together. So if you are wanting to go deeper in your knowledge, you better be prepared to go deeper in your obedience. Now here's what I'm saying to you. You should want both. You should. You should want both. But I think many of us, many of us need less precept and more practice. Less knowledge and more obedience. And again, these aren't pitted against each other. It's just the, it's the motivation for these things that can be off. But especially when it comes to this command, I mean, here's the question that we need to be asking of ourselves this morning, of us as a church, and I'm asking this in my own heart, I'm asking this in the life of our church, are we making disciples? Are we? And I can just tell you, listen, I, I, can, I can point to so many people in the life of this church that are truly making disciples. They're pouring themselves into others. They're serving them and blessing them. They're getting up early and having meetings, and they're having late night dinners and conversations. They're sacrificing much to pour into others, and it's such a blessing to see that happening. But my, my concern is what's always a concern in the church, right? It's the 80-20 rule. You have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if those numbers were reversed in the life of our church? Can you imagine if 100% of the followers of Jesus Christ were making faithful followers of Jesus Christ? Imagine the impact we would have in this community and in this world in such a short amount of time. I really believe it would be absolutely astounding. It would be remarkable to consider what God might do through us if we just start doing the one thing he's actually commanded us to do. And as you're thinking about that, just ask yourself this question. Can you actually point to people in this church today that are here because you have helped bring them in the doors? Can you point to people in this church today who are growing in Christ because the investment you are making in them? Can you point to those people? Are you doing, and am I doing, the one thing that Jesus told us is essential for following him? You see, God's plan for how he would grow the church wasn't by giving it one guy with a preaching gift. It wasn't by using cool music and creative techniques or creative programs. It wasn't an awesome facility or sweet technology that God said would grow the church, Jesus' plan was that each individual believer would make disciples of those around them. Holman says this, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor will occasional prayer meetings and training classes where Christian workers do the job. 
Individual men and women are God's method. God's plan for discipleship isn't something, but someone. You are God's plan to make disciples. So, let me use the language of Paul. Are you working properly? Are we working properly together? I think the honest answer is, we have a lot of room to grow, and the good news is, God wants to grow us and get us there. I want you desperately, just like I want from my own heart, to know what to do and to do it. And most of us can define our lives with one word, busy. And I wonder if many of us will get to the end of our lives and realize that we were so busy that we never did the one thing that Jesus said we must actually do. We've made discipleship a small part of our lives and not the main point of our lives. You say, well, where do I start? You start right here. You start right here, right now. You realize that God has put you in the context of a community where he wants you to grow in discipleship relationships, and then you realize this, and that you start with the sphere of influence that God has given you. Do you realize that God has given you a platform or a network of relationships through which you can make disciples? Maybe it's your vocation. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom who goes to the park and meets with other stay-at-home moms. Whatever it is, whatever vocation God has given you, your profession naturally puts you into contact with people, listen, that are more likely to listen to you than they are to listen to me. That's why when you read through the book of Acts, this is so fascinating, you read through the book of Acts, one of the things you see over and over again is that the gospel spreads faster through the efforts of ordinary people than it does through the apostles. Do you realize that? The apostles rarely went to a city or a place where the gospel had not already been spread or brought to. Right? On the wings of business, ordinary Christians hear the gospel in one place and they bring it to the next. The gospel isn't going to be taken to the nations primarily by me, Disciples aren't going to be made in the nations primarily by me. Do you realize they're going to be made primarily by you? The gospel's not going to be taken, and disciples aren't going to be made of your neighbors and your family and friends by me, but by you. Our evangelism strategy is the same as our discipleship strategy, you. You play a more strategic role in the worldwide spread of the gospel than by those of us who are actually in vocational ministry. Right? We equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means you, the saints, do the work of the ministry. You know, that's somewhat frustrating in one sense for me. I just, I just want to be honest with you. I'm really, you know, you realize I'm really not on the front lines of ministry. You are. I mean, I'm, I, I'm around Christians all the time. Some of you are like, that's awesome. No. I, I actually, like, I, I work in a church office, right? I'm around Christians all the time. I'm pretty sure that 75% of our staff is saved. That's all usual. <laughs> but in, in some sense, look, I'm genuinely in some sense envious of you. you. You rub shoulders with unbelievers all the time, all day long. I don't, I don't get that. And winning them to Jesus Christ is not the end, it's the beginning, it's the beginning of a discipleship process where we still see people through your efforts, listen to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. We have been given a mission. We have been given a ministry by Jesus Christ. And purposeful disciple making is not the same thing as attending church regularly. It's not the same thing as supporting a church financially. It's not the same thing as singing songs and even serving in ministries on a Sunday morning. That's not the same thing. Here's what purposeful disciple making is. It is teaching others who will teach others who will teach others. You see, the thing that has been lost the most in our discipleship efforts is this. We are called as we grow as disciples. And one of the true marks of us growing as disciples 
is that we are then turning around and making other disciples. Coleman says this, one must decide where he wants his ministry to count. In the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of his life in a few chosen men who will carry on his work after he is gone. This is the model that Jesus has set for us.